welcome to another episode of Women in the Word at Uni. My name is Rachel and today we're going to be continuing on with the second talk in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you missed the last episode, I encourage you to go back and have a listen. Just to recap, Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom section of the Bible, which teaches us how to live wisely. In Ecclesiastes, we hear the main voice, that of the teacher, as he seeks to discover meaning and fulfillment in life. So with that in mind, are you ready to hear some more of what the teacher has to say? Well, consider for a moment, what's your favourite form of social media? What do you have on your phone? What do you use the most? I lean towards Facebook myself. I think I like it because it's a really easy, convenient, visual way to keep up with friends, some of whom I don't see very often, if ever. I love it when friends post their engagement announcements, wedding photos, birth announcements, cute baby photos, quirky memes, and their reflections on life. I also like it because I can share news really quickly with a whole bunch of people all at once. Social media is really useful. Instead of losing touch with my high school friend who's made a permanent move to the USA, Facebook connects us. I see her kids grow up and she sees mine, even though I've never met her children, nor she mine. I know my cousin who lives in Melbourne is on a world trip with his family, so I know that they've been to Disneyland and Ireland and countless other destinations and that they're coming home soon. Social media can really help us stay connected with people. How well connected are you? You might be able to quantify that by how many social media accounts, friends or followers you have, but let's take it to the subjective level. How well connected do you feel? How connected is your life? Do you ever feel disconnected? Do you ever feel that as much as social media gives you a great breadth of interaction, in that it allows you to connect with hundreds of people all at once, you might actually like something a little deeper, relationship that goes beyond the level of this is what I did today. Connection that means you know someone and that you are truly known for who you are inside, not just what people see on the surface. In the part of Ecclesiastes we're looking at today, we'll see what the teacher has to say about a well-connected life. We're going to find ancient wisdom from thousands of years ago, which actually speaks to our fast-paced, digitally charged world today, because connectedness is not an issue just for our times. It's one which the teacher faced too. He saw disconnectedness in his world and he saw that as a problem. So he sought to find a more connected life. Come with me today to Ecclesiastes 4 to 6 to see what he had to say. I really encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you. Digital or hard copy are both fine. Now, if you're looking for Ecclesiastes, especially in a hard copy version, it's roughly in the middle of your Bible. If you find Psalms, then flick a little further through Proverbs. After Proverbs, you'll find Ecclesiastes. If you hit Song of Songs or Isaiah, you've gone just a tad bit too far. We'll begin by reading Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 1 to 6. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. 
and I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Here in this passage from Ecclesiastes, we see a picture of a disconnected life. Here the teacher observes oppression. People are oppressed, left without comfort, vulnerable to the power of their oppressors in chapter 4 verse 1. If we jump over to chapter 5 verses 8 to 9, we see the same issue. It says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Here in these verses, we see that only the king benefits from the work of the labourer and people are left oppressed. Back in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What does the teacher observe as the great motivator for work and achievement? envy of other people, trying to have what they have or to get ahead of them. It's a discontentment with one's own status, position or possessions when compared with someone else's. And this brings disconnectedness from others because the person is seeing them as rivals. What's more, as the powerful seek their own advancement, they are disconnected from the vulnerable who suffer as a result. Let's keep reading. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Here is a man who is living a disconnected life, a discontented disconnected life. He is driven to work, driven to earn, discontented with what he has earned so that he's neither enjoying the product of his labours nor the work that earns them. Yet who is he working for? Well, not himself evidently, but neither is he working for someone, anyone else's benefit since he has no one to share his wealth with. He wants more, but he can't enjoy it, so it is meaningless to him. He's alone. He is disconnected. As the teacher observes in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The more you have, the more others will crowd around wanting to share. The owner's only benefit comes from looking at what he's earned from observing it. So let's keep reading from Ecclesiastes 5 verses 12 to 17. The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil, 
that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. This pursuit of wealth not only harms and disconnects a person from those over whom they have power, it can have an adverse effect on their own children for whom there is nothing left to inherit and it can even be harmful to the self. They can't sleep in verse 12 and all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger in verse 17. There is no gain since they toil for the wind in verse 16. They will never be able to catch what they're trying to get. It will always elude them. Here is the disconnected life. It is a life of loneliness, dissatisfaction, frustration, tiredness with seeking to accumulate something which is of no long-term benefit and which they ultimately can't catch, like chasing the wind. Read on with me to Ecclesiastes 6 verses 1 to 9. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So bad is it to have wealth and not be able to enjoy it that the teacher says a stillborn child, a baby who never even takes one single breath outside the womb, is better off. It's a shocking picture, but it emphasises for us just how sad the disconnected life is. The disconnected life which has much in terms of material possessions but lacks the ability to enjoy them. The disconnected life which wants more and more but never has enough as verse 7 tells us. It is better, observes the teacher, to be satisfied with what one sees in verse 9 than to have an appetite that is roving, never satisfied, always wanting to find more, more, more. This is meaningless. It is a chasing after the wind. It is something elusive, like trying to catch the wind. The appetite will never be satisfied. This could be the person with the multi-million dollar Riverview apartment in Hamilton. She drives home from work in her Jaguar, sits down in her media room exhausted from her day at work. She flicks on the TV. What will she watch? Whatever she wants. Her housekeeper comes in with her dinner, a paleo salad of kale, pomegranate and pumpkin, sprinkled with hemp seeds and a little truffle oil before going home for the night. She's so hungry that she swallows it without really tasting. And to be honest, she's a bit over paleo anyway. Still, it's what her personal di trainer dictates. Ugh, training, she mutters under her breath, remembering that she has a session at 6am. She has to squeeze it in early before she flies to New York on another work trip. If she pauses to consider, she would recall that she loved New York the first time she visited. 
but now it's just another trip to secure another deal for her boss. He sends, she goes. There will be a cocktail meet and greet party her first evening there, but she's so over the fake personas and ingenuine niceness that everyone will put on. Besides, she'll be jet-lagged even though she'll fly first class. Airplane beds don't stand a chance against her insomnia. She finishes dinner and leaves her plate on the side table for the cleaner to collect in the morning. She goes up to her bedroom, has a shower and dons her Prada silk pyjamas. So last season, she thinks, failing to notice the softness of the fabric and the perfect fit of the cut. She picks up her iPad and opens the Cartier website, scrolling through diamond bracelets, looking for one to wear with the earrings that she bought last week. She's so tired, so she closes her iPad, turns off the light and closes her eyes. Then this thought strikes her, hmm, maybe I should buy a necklace instead. Would that be too showy, being so close to my earrings? Is it even possible to be too showy? What if I bought a ring instead? Or perhaps even both? She opens her iPad and returns to the Cartier site. Then after five minutes, she shuts it and closes her eyes again. This is a cycle she repeats most nights. It's a cycle she'll repeat again and again tonight. She might try to break the cycle by making herself a hot chocolate, thinking meanwhile that perhaps she should employ her housekeeper to stay 24 hours a day so she can just call her to make the midnight hot chocolate. Of course she'd have to raise her pay though, but then didn't she include a clause in her housekeeper's contract to stipulate that her duties included after hours work as required? No sooner has she climbed back into bed than her phone beeps. There's an email from her associate in New York. There's a small family-owned business that refuses to sell and stands in the way of the development project she's working on. Of course, they're arguing that the business has been in the family for four generations and employs a staff of 50, mostly from underprivileged backgrounds. But she barely notices those details. She's determined to seal this deal as soon as possible. She recommends taking assertive, aggressive action. The development will go ahead, whatever the cost. She writes a somewhat terse reply to her associate and hits send. It's terse because her associate knows how important this deal is and should be able to figure out a solution on his own. It's also terse because, well, how dare a little business stand in the way of her multi-million dollar one? Who do they think they are? Ultimately, she will sleep, but only because she's exhausted from months of sleep deprivation caused by this nightly cycle of attempts to sleep broken by racing thoughts and the endless demands of her job. Or perhaps she's someone a little closer to home. She's the uni student who works hard. She has two jobs. She could probably get by on one, but she'd rather have a little extra buffer room in her budget. She doesn't really have too many friends in your class because even though you see her most days, she rushes off immediately after tutorials and lectures because she's either going to work or squeezing in some time in the library to research an assignment before she goes to work. No one wants to do group assignments with her because she's so hard to find a time to meet with. She looks perpetually tired and always has a can of Coke or a coffee in one hand because she's staying up late after her shift at work to study. Her Facebook friends are mostly people she went to school with, but she doesn't see them anymore. She doesn't have time. Every now and then she posts a photo of herself at the beach, smiling broadly, to at least give them the impression that she has a life. She hasn't been to the beach since Christmas before last, but she's glad she took a lot of photos when she did so that she's got something to keep on posting. These are disconnected lives, lives of building up material possessions, lives of isolation from others as a result. Lives which are actually harmful to the self and to others. Lives of chasing something elusive, seeking a satisfaction which can't be bought. Is there an alternative? 
Happily, yes, there is. The alternative to the disconnected life is the connected life. Come with me to Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In comparison to the person who is disconnected, busy accumulating possessions but with no one to share them or failing to share them, here we see the good of connectedness. It is a community of people, each helping each other, working together, supporting each other when they're struggling, helping to care for each other's basic needs, defending one another. What else does the connected life look like? Let's read chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life, because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Work can be satisfying. Possessions can be enjoyed. Even wealth can be enjoyed. What the teacher tells us here is that wealth and possessions aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. They can be enjoyed. But what's the difference between this person and the disconnected one? God has enabled this person to enjoy what they have. Their work is not a futile chasing after the wind type of striving. Instead, this person accepts their lot, as verse 19 tells us, and enjoys what they have and the work they do because God enables them to do so. The connected life is connected to God. Now, it's not saying that we can, after all, strive to accumulate possessions and to justify doing so by simply stopping to be thankful to God. No, but possessions just are not the priority. Read with me one more passage from Ecclesiastes. It's Ecclesiastes 5 verses 1 to 7. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Now, these verses are all about worship, about coming before God. They teach us to be careful how we act when we go to worship God, to watch our words and to not make vows before God that we might not fulfill. A key point comes at the very end with just three little words. Therefore, fear God. This is the key to a connected life. Fear God. It's not an anxious type of fear like you might be fearful of spiders or heights or snakes. 
When the Bible talks about fearing God, it means honour. It means standing in awe of him and his greatness. It means revering him, acknowledging him as the great creator of the universe, who despite the massive gap between his holiness and our humanness, loves us so much that he sent his own son to live among us and to give up his own life by dying for us so that we might be able to have a relationship with him. Do you want to know how to be truly connected? Hear the teacher. Fear God. Acknowledge him for who he is. Stand in awe of him. A truly connected life is connected to God in relationship with him. And you see, this connectedness to God is only possible because Jesus, the Son of God, more connected to God than any other person in human history ever has been or will be, he suffered complete separation from God when he bore the sins of the entire world on himself as he died on the cross. He suffered complete disconnection from God so that we could know connection to him. How connected are you? Ultimately, who are you living for? Are you living a disconnected life? Or are you living a life that is truly connected to God? Because you can't do both. But sometimes we try, don't we? Sometimes if we're already Christians, we might try to live a life of following God, but still making our possessions or achievements a pretty high priority. Perhaps if we're honest, even a higher priority than our relationship with him. Jesus had something to say about this. In our last podcast, we read these verses from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A few verses further down from verses 24 to 34, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What Jesus says to us here is that we need to choose what comes first in our life, God or money. We can't sink our efforts into earning and accumulation and still live a life of true connectedness to God. It just doesn't work. God will provide for what we need, so we don't need to chase after possessions. And maybe this is what the connected person in Ecclesiastes was doing. Perhaps they weren't worrying about how to get more or even how to just get enough. 
Perhaps they weren't seeking after wealth with their headspace divided between accumulation and worship. Instead, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.33 that the connected person seeks first God's kingdom. That means making a priority of God and the things that honour him. So consider the following questions as a guide to help you live a more God-connected life. When I plan out my time, what do I prioritise? Consider placing things in this order. God, then others, then self. When I am working on an assignment, what spurs me on? Is it a desire to study well so that I can be well equipped by my time at uni to serve God with my life? Or am I driven to get the best possible GPA because I like how it sounds? Or am I driven by competitiveness or a fear of the feeling of letting myself down if I don't get the best possible mark? Is there an extracurricular activity or an extra credit commitment I could drop? Or could I reduce my work hours so that I can commit more time to my church and to other people? When I post on Facebook, Twitter or other social media, am I thinking, how will this post make God look? Be cautious of posting if your heart is focusing on how it makes you look. A well-connected life is a God-connected life. So fear God. Make Him your top priority. Make decisions that revolve around connectedness to Him and around helping others know how to be connected to Him. He is the only one who can truly satisfy our deepest longings for connection. All other strivings are a chasing after the wind. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his own complete, perfect connectedness to you by dying for our sins so that we could know connection to you and have a relationship with you. Help us to live lives that fear you and seek first the things that please you before our own personal desires and agendas. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to be connected to God, but you don't know how, you can ask God to help you to know connection to him. Ask him to forgive you for the sins that disconnect you from him and thank him for sending Jesus to pay the price for your sins. Now, if this is something you're wanting to pray or you're praying it right now, or if you would just like to know more about Christianity and about what all this means, please talk to a Christian friend so they can help you to know more about following Jesus. Or please do email me at r-a-k-o-t-t-e-r-e-r at gmail.com and I can send you some information and put you in touch with Christians near where you live.